Um, I'm glad to see all of you guys. Excited to be here to continue our series. How many of you guys like road trips? Raise your hand. Yeah. Uh, how many of you like road trips with a four-year-old? Not as many hands. Not as many hands. Uh, I just got back from a road trip. Uh, I think we just barely made it out of the driveway before my four-year-old asked me, are we there yet? Um, it gets passed on from generation to generation. Uh, this was actually my favorite moment with my, my four-year-old. I'll show you a picture. When he finally passed out. That was a good, that was a good moment in the car. Um, it was about an hour into the trip when he noticed that the other kids had these little bites. Uh, we ate the last ones. Well, what does a four-year-old do when you don't have any of what they just asked for? They asked for something else, right? No. They asked, does that satisfy him? No. I'm like, I've got this really cool chocolate chip muffy. It's like the same thing, just another shape. Does that satisfy him? No. I want muffies. For, three, for 30 minutes, he's screaming, I want little bites. I want little bites. I wish there was an off switch, switch for four-year-olds. I think it's cold medicine, but I just wish there was just like a little thing where you could just kind of like just shut them off for a little while. And, uh, but road trips, like life, are unpredictable and annoying. Uh, you always get behind the person driving like Gandalf, you shall not pass. Um, at one point, GPS decided to take us on a scenic route. Thank you, GPS. We entered the small town, and on the side of the road was an amateur wrestling match. A guy was dressed, I kid you not, as a clown with green hair, and he appeared to be winning. Thank you, GPS. I couldn't have gone my whole life without seeing that, so thank you for fulfilling my dreams. Um, two weeks ago, we started talking about a man named Job. Everyone say Job. Now, no one has ever said, I wish, episode of the lifestyles of the rich and blameless. But a half chapter later, it becomes an episode of Stranger Things. Let's stand and read Job chapter 1, verse 1 and 3. Let's read this together. And of us there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. You may be seated. Talk about status. He's called the greatest man of the East. That's a lot of territory. Banks went to him for loans. Mom asked their kids, why can't you be more like Job? Um, Job thought his life would be as predictable as a NASCAR racetrack. 200 laps, 500 miles, 800, what kind of turns? On Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. He expected his life to be too blessed to be stressed for the rest of his life. But Job chapter 29, verse 18 and 20, he puts it like this. I thought I will die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My glory will not fade. Everyone say that. My glory will not fade. The bow will be ever new in my hand. He expected his life to be constantly up and to the right. Moving on up to the east side. Health, wealth, and voted the most lucky man out of everyone else. But then his life took a sharp right turn. Left, 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 left. Oh, we're going right. Thank you. He loses everything. And one day, all ten of his kids died, and he lost a majority of his riches. Could you imagine can you imagine a day like that where you just get bad news after bad news after bad news? Now, while plot twists make jokes funny and stories fascinating, they make life frightening, especially when it's your life. Life often comes with more twists and turns than an Elvis impersonator singing All Shook Up. It would be nice if we got a message from heaven. We interrupt this program to be, bring you an important message. This is a test. It's only a test, and it'll last 30 days. But it never happens that way. 
Job isn't told about the heavenly conversation between God and Satan. Job isn't sent a traveling minister to warn him life is going to stink for a little while, but in a few months you'll bounce back and things are going to be great again. He just gets clotheslined by tragedy with no warning. One moment he's singing, it's, everything is awesome. The next moment he's singing, it's a hard not life for us, Jay-Z. His first words after worship are Job 3.1. May the day of my birth perish. Talk about a low moment. I mean, we always focus on his little worship scene, but the very next words are, may the day of my birth perish. Rip it out of the calendar. Take it off of Facebook. I don't want anyone to wish me a happy birthday. One moment he's living the life others pray to have, and now he would give anything to have never been born. He was the greatest man in the East. But all of that's forgotten when you're suffering. I watched a video about a lady visiting a farm, and, and they had this horse pen, and she got really excited because she grew up in the city, and she never really got to see horses and, in person, so she runs up, and she's like, oh, I got to pet one of these horses, and she runs up, and she touches the fence and doesn't realize it's an electric fence. It's electric, boogie, 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 and uh, gets zapped, like, you know, she's doing, like, pee-pee dance because she's getting zapped so hard, and, and what's worse is as she's running down to pet the horses, you hear her husband, who's videotaping it, and another person talking about, should we warn her that it's an electric fence? And he says, no. I think the next video was of their divorce. Job chapter 30, verse 26. Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. What a tragic verse. Here he's anticipating that things are constantly going to be going left turn, left turn, left turn, left turn, blessing, blessing, blessing. And then all of a sudden it's a right turn. It's like, wait a second. I'm all discombobulated. Where's the God that I've been serving all these years? Have you ever been there? The university of adversity? Every class is harder than the next. You expected mercies every morning, but you woke up to miseries every morning. I listened to a preacher named Roy Patterson tell a story. He wanted to go to Africa for a missions trip, but the group didn't want him to go with for some reason. He felt rejected and disrespected. He felt like God really wanted him to go, but the door just wasn't open. So he went and he preached at another church, and it was small. There wasn't a lot of people there. But a man invited him for lunch afterwards, steak specifically. You can't turn down steak. It would be a mistake to turn down steak. So he goes out and he's having filet mignon, or he called it filet mignon. I guess it's all in where you grow up. During dinner, the man said to Roy, I'm going to Africa. And while you're preaching, I felt prompted to ask you, would you like to come to Africa with me? He's like, wait, what? Are we having this conversation? He says, and I want to pay for your trip. When Roy gets on the plane, he heads towards coach, just expecting that that's where we're going to be sitting all the way to Africa. And he stopped. He said, no, 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 we're riding first class. To which Roy said, God shut a door and opened a better barn door. I love when God does that. Has anyone ever had like God do like a shut one door, open another door? But that's not how life always unfolds, at least not immediately. I thought when my first book came out, it would be a chance to move up from coach not to first class, but to like further up coach where there's like more leg room up at the front and the kids aren't kicking you in the back. But instead, book came out and it was like we got moved back to the luggage with the house pets. God closed a door and opened a kennel door. Thank you, Lord. 
We experienced one tragedy after another, and I won't go through all of it because you guys have heard this already. Wife's broken ankle, my electrical signal in my heart going haywire, can't walk long without it hitting 180, which is a treat, and, um, which means I can't exercise. I've always exercised. I've run Tough mutters. I've always been the active person, and now I can't do it, which means for the first time in my life, I can do the skinny man truffle shuffle, which is not good to look at. Aww. As soon as we budgeted to eat at home during this whole season, our microwave died, which is still, like, missing, and I keep looking at it for the clock. Oh, it's a hole still there. The oven went out, which meant we had to make prison-style Zippo lighter grilled cheese. (laughs) Welcome to jail, kids. What's on the menu? Grilled cheese. You see, tragedy is like a little brother that refuses to keep his nasty fingers to himself. You're sitting in the back seat enjoying the family road trip, when he sticks his finger in your ear shouting, who wants a wet willy? Like anyone ever wants a wet willy. Tragedy doesn't respect boundaries. It never checks your schedule to see when it'll be convenient. It doesn't care what kind of day you're having, how much money you've already spent in therapy. It just shoves its nasty finger into the middle of your day. Anyone experience that? It would be tempting to break tragedy's finger and chuck him out the window. But like the annoying little brother, he will be with you the entire trip. So if you can't avoid tragedy, how do we cope with it? How do we turn tragedy into a teacher rather than an annoying little brother? You see, you can't control tragedy's presence, but you can control the role it plays in your life. I'm going to say that again. You can't control tragedy's presence, but you can control the role it plays in your life. Will it be the bully or will it be the life coach? Will it be the CEO of your life, or will it be an employee? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Scripture says. Will you use your pain as a platform to speak into the lives of others? At one point, Job says in in chapter 19, verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that my pain wasn't wasted. Well, he gets his wish, and, and a book is written about him. But think about it. Without this season in Job's life, we would have never have heard about him. You see, Job's not even Jewish, and yet he's featured prominently in the Hebrew Scriptures. When God points back to righteous people, he lists three. Noah, Daniel, and guess who? Job. Job encourages us to this day. Millions, if not billions of people because of this moment in his life which he would not have been written in the diary, that he didn't have to live through. But because he lived through it, because he remained faithful, we benefit because of it. What does God want to do with your pain? How does he want to use your story, the parts of your life that you want to hide, the parts of your life that you wish no one ever heard about or knew about, and yet God could use that very thing to bring healing and freedom to somebody else? His story challenges a backwards thought on life, the thought that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. You see, sin has flipped reality upside down. We live in a broken world, but there's comfort in knowing that for those in Christ, this world is the only hell you will ever know, that one day you will be in God's presence where he will right every wrong. Job's season of suffering was really a season of testing, And he could choose what role tragedy would play in his life. Job chapter 23 verse 10 says, When he has tested me, everyone say that. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. 
There will be a renewing process that takes place. I will be more valuable after this season. How many of you like tests? Nerds. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, the purpose of a test is typically to show what you know and where you need to grow. But the motive behind Job's test was slightly different. Satan wanted to discredit Job. He doesn't really love you, God. He married up. He's in it for what you do, not who you are. Job's a gold digger, we might say. But God wanted to display Job's integrity. The test is a sign of God's confidence. God could pick anyone on the planet to prove the point that he's making right now, but he chooses Job. Job should be flattered. He doesn't feel flattered right now, but he should be flattered because God trusts that even if Job loses all his stuff, God is still enough. Job would love to echo like Mother Teresa, I know God will never give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. What if we saw our test as God's confidence in us? It's not God's rejection. It's God's pride. Like a father showcasing his kids' talents, he wants to display our integrity and our humility. We're not being set up to fail, but to prevail. See, Satan gives the test and is the only one who gets the big red F. He's sure that Job will curse God to his face, but Job chooses to trust God instead. Job sacrificially says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. What an awesome, defiant statement. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. How that must have stung the prince of evil's ears. How he must have wounded his pride. Job is supposed to shake a fist at God, but bends a knee instead. Job chapter 1, verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This has to win some sort of award for world's most spiritually mature response to a tragedy. Think about it. He's just lost all 10 of his kids, most of his riches, and yet his knee-jerk reaction is to praise God and say, God, you give, you take, your name is to be praised. Worship is war, and Job fights back with defiant praise. You see, put a billion people in Job's sandals, and they would not have responded the same way. I know that my knee-jerk reaction is oftentimes in tragedy's face, not worship. Thank God for another bill. Thank God that my coffee just spilled. Thank God that I have the chills. Thank God that the internet is sitting still. Thank God for the kids I want to kill, metaphorically. Fortunately, the book doesn't end here. I, I would never be able to live up to Job if, if all it was is just the first two chapters. It just ends with, and his name is to be praised. Well, that's awesome. But the book goes on, and it's not just a book of worship. It's a book of wrestling. Job goes through a lot of struggle. You see, pain is like pepper spray to the eyes. We're temporarily, temporarily blinded by life's disappointments. While we're writhing on the ground, our vision of God, joy, and hope is blurred. What we once saw clearly is obscured. Favorite passages like, I have plans to prosper you. How many of you have ever said that? I have plans to prosper you. But when you're in the midst of tragedy, it becomes, I have plans to prosper everyone but you. Or you think of pain lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's another good one. That when you've hit pain after pain after pain, it turns into joy lasts for a night, but pain comes in the morning and refuses to leave once it's unpacked its bags. 
You see, humans are predictive by nature, but we're not always very good at it, Weather Channel. Listen to how Job describes his future. In Job chapter 7, verse 7, my eyes will never see happiness again. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like happiness is in the rearview mirror? That you've already had your best days? That all you have to look forward to now is just suffering, suffering, and more suffering? Job also says in verse 21, I will soon lie down in the dust. He, he expects that, that he's going to die soon and that it's just going to end tragically. And yet in chapter 42, verse 12, it says the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had way more happiness up God's sleeve that Job would indulge in, but he could not see it. In verse 16, it says, after this, Job lived 140 years. Job thought he was going to die any moment. This is how it's going to end. And yet God had so much more life and hope for him. You see, the worst time to predict the future is during a season of testing. That's why we shouldn't give up during the winter seasons of our soul when our thinking is most clouded. There's a saying amongst pastors, never quit on a Monday. No matter how bad the Sunday sermon went, don't quit on Monday because you've got a whole other week ahead of you that, that God can t- turn things around. Give God a chance. You see, if you snuck a sneak peek at my driver's license, you could figure out a few things about me. You could figure out my address, my birth date, November 8th, 1976, which I expect a present because now you know both my address and my birthday, so convenient. You could figure out my height and weight, slightly exaggerated, my eye color, hazel, and you would learn that I have to drive with glasses or contacts, though I managed to pass the test uh, without them, don't tell the DMV. Um, Your knowledge of me, though, would be limited. I mean, there's only so much you can learn about me on a driver's license. For example, you wouldn't know if I'm a good driver just based on my license. You would have to ask my wife for that information, which is slightly biased in the negative. Um, Our perspective on God and his plan is limited as well. We have a driver's license snapshot of God. We have the proof that he should be sitting in the driver's seat of our life, but we don't see the whole picture. Maybe things feel a little fast and furious right now. We're shoved up against the window because of the centripetal force from God's taking corners like a NASCAR driver. We're hugging the seatbelt and hoping that God sees us as more than a crash test dummy. We're looking at God like, are you sure you know what you're doing? I thought giving you the wheel was supposed to make life less crazy. Have you ever thought that? But it's in that moment that we have to trust God's skills to not make the mistake of reaching over and grabbing the wheel like a panic driver instructor. See, God's not into playing bumper cars unless it's strategic. God's not into playing bumper cars unless it's strategic. With God, there's no accidents, only providence. His record is flawless. Sure, passengers get banged up from time to time, but that's because God is more interested in your destiny than your destination which requires more than a peaceful joy ride like driving Miss Daisy. See, there's going to be speed bumps. There's going to be potholes. There's going to be hairpin corners and a lot of, ah! But we need to lean in, crank up some worship music, and pop a dramadine, remind ourselves why we handed God the keys to begin with, because he knows what's best. You see, you're on a tale of two journeys. One is circumstantial, but the other is character. See, I was thinking during uh, worship, I didn't share this with first service, but I feel oftentimes 
Like I'm like one of those packages in the back of like a FedEx truck. Have you ever gotten one of those packages and it's like all banged up? And it's like, what were they doing with that box? Yeah, it says fragile right on it. Keep this side up. It looks like they've been juggling with it. But here's the deal. God's not so concerned about how you look on the outside. What he's concerned about is what's going on on the inside. Above all else, guard your heart. God's put plastic wrap around that. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Even though we are in a world where you're going to get banged up, God's concern is that when you arrive before his throne, that your heart matches his heart. That's what he's doing. He's trying to shape your heart to match his heart. There's a YouTube video where Jeff Gordon takes a Camaro out for a test drive. Anyone know who Jeff Gordon is? NASCAR driver. He has on a disguise and introduces himself as Mike. The car salesman is on, you know, is excited to take him for this test drive. And, and Mike's like all nervous. He's like, I've never driven anything this fast before. He's like, oh, what do you normally drive? A station wagon. And, and so like he gasses it a little bit and it like lurks forward. And the guy's, you know, just take your time. These things are a lot to, to handle. All of a sudden he takes off as fast as he can. He's taking hairpin turns. He's cutting people off. And the driver instructor is like glued against the seat. And he's like one heartbeat away from a heart attack. And he's like, you are responsible for this. You're crazy. You're an idiot. And then he says words I can't say on a Sunday morning. And he's going off. When he gets out and he's running to go grab the phone to call the police, Jeff Gordon pulls the mask off. He says, hey, I'm Jeff Gordon. He's like, let's go do that again. (laughs) When you know who's in the driver's seat, when you really know God and his heart, in spite of the plot twists, in spite of the, the hairpin turns, you can trust him because you know that he knows what's best for your life. I was walking with my youngest when he noticed his shadow The sun was setting behind us, so a silhouette was triple the size. He says, wow, look at my shadow. I look like Bigfoot from 1986. Now, don't read into the date. He puts dates on like everything, and they mean nothing. (laughs) But shadows have a way of looking bigger and badder than the object they're projecting. I remember as a kid playing shadow puppets with my uncle. He liked to make a bunny with one hand and a dinosaur with another, and you can guess what he would do. The dinosaur would eat the bunny. No matter how many times I protested, don't eat the little bunny. Now, I knew that was just my uncle's hand, but on the wall, the shadow looked so terrifying. When David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's making an impressive claim because he says, I will fear no evil. A valley has hills on either side, so when the sun's setting, it casts an ominous shadow. No telling what is hidden out there, what predators are just waiting, and you are this vulnerable animal walking through. See, there's only one way in and one way out, so it's like a natural death trap. You might as well be on a conveyor belt, just being led to the predator's mouth. But David says, I fear no evil because God is my shepherd, and God is with me, and God carries a big stick. See, when God finally shows up for Job, he comes wielding a big stick, a reminder that God is sovereign, that God is powerful. In Job chapter 31, verse 1, I love this verse. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. 
38 chapters, and several months later, God finally answers Job. He's on the edge of his seat. He can't wait to hear what God has to say. See, Job asked 64 soul-stirring questions. I've underlined them, I know. Faith-grappling questions. Questions, uh, uh, just soul-stirring questions. But God never sets up a Q&A with Job. There, there's never this tit-for-tat, back-and-forth, you ask a question and I'll answer the question. God never says, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> Even when he answers Job, it's really just a list of 77 questions. Thanks, God. I ask questions and you ask questions. Where are we getting with all this? It's like a conversation with Plato or Sherlock Holmes or my four-year-old. Job's questions are answered with more questions. At first, it feels frustrating, anticlimactic. At first, it's very disenchanting. I've been waiting for God to speak to the problem of pain, but that's not what he wants to talk about. You see, the Bible rarely tells me what I want to know, but it always tells me what I need to know. The Bible rarely tells me what I want to know, but it always tells me what I need to know, because it wasn't written for my curiosity. It was written for my character. It was written to make me more like Christ. Perhaps what we need most when we're hurting it's not God's intelligence, it's God's presence. Not God's answers, but God. His silence doesn't mean he's not working. The questions are designed to remind Job of who God is. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. Job's current situation hasn't diminished God's swagger. He hasn't downshifted. When we are hurting, we may question God's identity, but our hurt doesn't change God's identity. Our story can't tarnish God's glory. See, God didn't show up to satisfy Job's curiosity, but to shape his character. There are questions that we will never fully understand this side of eternity. There's value in asking them, wrestling with them, but their answers are not what we need most. What we need most is God. When my son broke his arm, separating it by two inches, I didn't need the doctor to come in and have a philosophical conversation with me. I needed to know that he was going to take care of us. And when I'm hurting, what I need most isn't God's answers. What I need to know is that God is going to take care of me. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You see, it's only halftime. This isn't the final score I was reading about a Super Bowl where the New England Patriots were down 28-3 at halftime, and yet they came back to beat the Atlantic Falcons. If you read the book of Job, when he's suffering and when he's crying out, it's halftime, and it feels like he's losing, and it feels like that's going to be the final score. And yet if you read the end of the book, you see that Job wins. God wins. Can I tell you something? God's already given us the book of Revelation, which says, we win. You might feel down right now. You might feel like the final score is your deficit. But God has said, in the end, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthens us, and that we win. And he's going to use your story, including your 38 chapters of suffering, to bring about good and glory and hope and help. Don't hide your story. Use your story to bring hope to others. Let's pray.